San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. Good evening, everybody. This is Richard Musio. That's false advertising. Tonight, it's not Richard and Joe. It's just me, Richard. When I told Joe we were going to do a show about running, he went running out of the room and he didn't come back. So it's just me. But I got two great guests tonight. It's my Boston Marathon show. I think a lot of listeners know that my wife Mary is running the marathon on Patriot's Day, which is April 18th. And two days before that, I'm going to be running a thing called the Blindfold Challenge for Perkins School for the Blind, a great charity just outside of Boston. So first half of the show is with the representative from Perkins School for the Blind. That would be Marla Runyon. Marla is an accomplished runner. And she, for example, in 2003, running the Boston Marathon, running a two-hour and 30-minute race, was the number five woman overall and the number one U.S. woman in terms of finish. But her 230 time at Boston remains to this day the fastest Boston marathon ever run by a visually challenged athlete. Marla is visually challenged. So that too, that's male or female. And I believe Marla's personal record for a marathon is actually two hours and 27 minutes. Again, she's a San Diego State grad. We build them really, really fast out here in San Diego because you can run all, all, all year long, right, Justin? Because the, the weather's so incredible. So... So again, at 230 in Boston, she was number five overall, number one woman, and to this day, the fastest time ever at the Boston Marathon by a visually challenged athlete, either male or female. So Marla Runyon, great job back in 03. And Marla, are you there? How are you this evening? I'm here. Thank you very much. I'm great. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, so Perkins School for the Blind, you guys are doing something really, really cool. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about Perkins itself. I was fortunate enough to be included on your marathon team back in 2012. It was a nice hot day there in April, about 93 degrees, <laughs> and and ran for you guys, which is a really cool experience. Right. But I've taken a couple of tours of your amazing facility, Perkins School for the Blind. Can you tell our listeners a little bit, little bit about that? And if anybody knows the name Helen Keller, it goes hand in hand with Perkins. Right. Right. Yeah. Perkins Perkins School for the Blind is the first ever school for the blind in the United States. We are the original. Um, some of it, some people know of us just as Perkins, um, but we we are obviously known for our school. And um, Helen Keller, of course, is our most famous student. Uh, she attended um, Perkins, you know, back in her days, um, as did her teacher, um, Ann Sullivan, mm-hmm. who was also a student of Perkins. And we're based in Watertown, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. Um, Perkins today is is ever-changing and evolving, and we are always um, trying to remain as current and relevant in our world as possible. We have an amazing um, international program, so we reach people not just here in Watertown and not just here in the United States. We reach people around the world. And I think Perkins has a tremendous global influence um, r- related to the education of children who are blind and visually impaired. And so that's that's just what's so amazing about our, our institution is we have such an impact on such a large scale. And that's why it's so great to be a part of Perkins. Yeah. I saw one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life at the school. That was Helen Keller's Globe. 
<laughs> um, yes, the ever famous globe. As as we say, it's older than Braille. It doesn't even have. It Braille is older than Braille, exactly. It's older than Braille. I've, I I want to say 1830 was the creation of the famous globe. And, yes, 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 you know, almost, we've had yeah. you know former presidents. Two hundred years old. Yeah, we they've you know it's got this legacy of if anyone who comes and who's famous who's visited Perkins has touched the the, the infamous globe. So and even non-famous um, people like myself have touched it. <laughs> and myself as well. It's it's, it's awesome. It's um our, that's our museum right in our Howe building. It's a great um amazing place to walk through and just you're walking through the history of Perkins in route to the future of Perkins. So it's just a great environment to be in. Yeah, and you mentioned the word digital earlier. Um, I know um, the world has changed dramatically in the last 15, 20 years in terms of how people <laughs> communicate, exchange information, and so on. Obviously, being visually challenged has always been, um, you know, posed its whole, you know, a unique set of, of opportunities and challenges. But certainly now that we're in a digital age where people communicate mm -hmm. by cell phones and email and texting and so on, I think the way that people who have visual challenges, uh, you know, have to get through the world, it's much, much different than it used to be, correct? It is very different. It is very different. And, you know, one of our main missions of Perkins is really the, the concept or the of, of accessibility, of broadening accessibility in all domains, whether it's the physical space or the digital space. And so one of our services that we just recently kind of um, taken on and we're building this service and we've already had some really um, well-known clients in that we're helping individuals and organizations and institutions uh, make their websites accessible. So, you know, as we all know, the web is sort of a mandatory part of our lives and how we get through it. You can't go to college if you can't, you know, right. get on the get on the web and take a class, right? You can't check in and get your syllabus and all these things. You can't apply for a job. You know, you can't, you know, I even do my grocery shopping online. I do, um, you know, all, all, I do online banking. So if you think about the, what technology has offered us in so many ways, it's, it's a it's an avenue for incredible independence for someone who, for example, like myself, who doesn't drive. But at the same time, when websites aren't built the right way and when developers aren't thinking about accessibility, they end up creating barriers. And then all of a sudden we have sites that we can't use and that we can't complete our transaction or we can't, you know, uh, take that online course. And so one of the things we're trying to do here at Perkins is help institutions help companies um, learn how to develop an accessible site. So we'll review their site and we'll tell them what's going on, what the barriers are, and we'll help them fix and then we'll help them fix it so so that it's they're going to have a larger audience. It's going to be more universally accessible to everyone. Someone who comes in with a screen reader, for example, mm -hmm. who can't see your site can still go in and fill out that form and still make that transaction or buy your product. And that can all happen as long as your site is coded the right way. And so we're trying to, to get the word out and, and help companies do it the right way. Yeah, and isn't the challenge even greater, though, than for children, for, say, adults who might be 40 and 50 who are visually challenged, who, you know, shall we say, grew up before the, the digital age and, and mm -hmm. now have had to make adjustments into the digital age as opposed to being born into it? Definitely. It's definitely more challenging if you don't, if you are someone who is losing their vision as an adult or later in life and 
you're sort of in this place where what what resources are available to me? How do I do this? You know, how mm-hmm. do I go through my day now? Everything's different. And it, there's always a learning curve in a, in a, in a, in a period of, of learning how to do things differently. I always used to say when I, you know, I, I lost, um, started losing my vision when I was nine mm-hmm. and had normal vision up until that point. And my, my attitude as a, as a child and as a teenager was like, oh, I can do that. I can do that. I just have to do it a little different than how you would do it, but I can do it. And I think that's a, it's a hard, it's a hard um, concept to get because I think as you, as an older adult, um, you know, even now the age I am now in my 40s, it's hard to change how you do things. You're used to, you're used to how you go about your day. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a pretty dramatic lifestyle change when you start losing vision. Um, but, you know, the message I want people to know is that it doesn't mean you can't do something. It means you can. It's just you have to learn how to do it differently. And there might be tools you have to use. There might be technology you have to use. Um, there's just another way of doing it. And, and we want to help, you know, I, that's one of the things I'm really, uh, feel so passionate about is showing people and helping people being an example, but also saying, look, there's another way of doing that. And let me show you. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it might even be not as complicated as we thought, you know? Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of transition and a lot of learning and a lot of educating and, and guidance that, that is a part of what we do here at Perkins. So, and how many um, students do you serve approximately, both locally as well as, shall we say, worldwide? Well, that is a big number. Oh my goodness! I could start with the the smaller numbers. We mm. have on campus about 200 students on campus. An absolutely so beautiful some, campus, by the way. It's beautiful. It's about 40 acres. We have five educational programs. We have our deaf blind program, our lower school, our secondary program. Uh, we have an infant toddler program, and then we also have um, an outreach. Or I should let me rephrase. It's called um, community programs. So community programs are. Um, our TVIs, our, our O&M instructors, that's orientation and mobility instructors, a TVI is a teacher of the visually impaired. They serve, they serve students who are visually impaired all throughout New England. So some of them, they are never here. They're never on campus. Mm-hmm. They're out serving students in Maine, Connecticut, New Hampshire, all over the state of Massachusetts. So we have a huge reach in that area as well, as well as students who are not on campus, but in their public schools, and we reach out and support them in their, in their public schools. In addition, we have what's called outreach, which is our on-campus programs for kids to come to Perkins for a two-week, a two-week camp, for example, on independent living skills, or um, a four-week pr- camp in the summer where they learn uh, a lot of the skills that that you and I or someone who has, who has always had vision might not even realize they learned just by watching. Mm-hmm. So when you grow up through life, you learn so much just by watching and observing and seeing your mom and dad make dinner right. or seeing, you know, you're seeing all the... Or siblings. Called, hey, Marla, I apologize. We have to take a quick break. Right. To, so we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Marla Runyon okay. from Perkins School for the Blind. So everybody sit tight. We are back. It's your money and your life. It's Richard Musio flying solo. No Joe Vecchio tonight. I gave Joe the um, the night off so he could relax and 
through some other things. I think he's doing one show by himself in May, so I can take one Saturday night off. But we're on the line with Marla Runyon from Perkins School for the Blind in Waterton, Massachusetts, near Boston. Marla, you, you were mentioning um, uh, with families like how a lot of kids, for example, learn by observation from parents, from siblings. Obviously, if one's visual, visually impaired, they, they have a whole different way of learning things, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of the things that the kids learn who are sighted, they learn just by watching. We have to teach those skills. I mean, we, believe it or not, whether it's cooking, whether it's, you know, getting dressed or doing laundry or, you know, I can't even, you know, shaving. (laughs) It's everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just watching someone do it and then being able to do it yourself. It's when you can't see someone do it, someone's going to, you have to do it yourself and you have to learn by experience. And so that's kind of a a major theme of what we do here at Perkins is teaching by doing and a lot of experience-based instruction. How long have you been with Perkins? I've been here three years. Three years, I've been here three years. You know, I'm a former San Diego, uh, (laughs) San Diego State alum. um, That's what I heard, that you're you're an Aztec. Okay. I am. I am. Yeah. So I'm now out here in New England. How'd uh, you find your way to San Diego and how'd you find your way back to Boston? I'm just curious. Well, I grew up in Southern California, okay. and I went to, I went to San Diego State uh, for both my bachelor's and my master's oh, okay. Okay. back in the 80s and 90s, and yep. then uh, lived in Oregon for several years, and then just recently came out to, to Massachusetts in three years ago. Oh, neat stuff. So real quickly, my personal experience, and with Perkins, um, I... Um, with regard to my my vision, I um, in 1996 lost sight in one eye when one of my kids accidentally kicked me in the eye, and then five years later in 01 had a series of retinal tears and detachments in the other eye, which um, were very serious and necessitated. Oh, I don't know six. Or, I've lost how many track of track of how many surgeries where I had to have an oil covering over the eye. So at that point, I was over two, um, and so from basically October of 01 to January of 03, I couldn't see while I was having all of this work going on. And I wasn't a runner before then, I, um, but I couldn't exercise for about 15 months because part of my recovery, I actually had to lay motionless for oh 90, straight, 90 straight days for 12 hours out of every 24 oh. um, in sort of a semi-upside-down position so that gravity would promote healing in the eye because if I had any more issues with scar tissue, I wasn't going to get my sight back. And so I gained like 40 pounds. So, you know, I went into this weighing 190 and came out of this weighing 230. You know, the stuff your eye doctor doesn't tell you. Yeah. And it wasn't because my diet got bad. I mean, I just, when you're in your mid forties and, and you're not moving because you can't. Yeah. So I took up jogging and then discovered after I lost some weight that I was a pretty good long distance endurance runner. So I decided I wanted to do some things, you know, to try to, you know, help some good causes and Perkins being one. So I ran for you guys. 2012 in the brutal heat, the record-breaking heat of April 2012, yeah. and then a couple of years earlier, did Boston in 2010 when it was about 33 degrees. In fact, my joke is, <laughs> the average temperature when I've run Boston has been 63. It was 33 one year and 93 the next year, but that's an average of 63, right? So right, that sounds about right. It's about right. So anyway, this is a financial yeah. show, so I can do math, right? So anyway, it was just a really cool experience, you know, running for Perkins. But that that was really what you know, got me into running was I needed to get my health back and, and just, you know, doing general exercise or whatever wasn't going to work. I had to just change my entire lifestyle, which I did. And, and so, um, but it was because of my vision loss and I, I'm fortunate. I got about a hundred percent vision back in one eye and about 80% in the other. So I've been very fortunate, even though mm. it's a continuing challenge. Um, you know, today, for example, I was having a really hard time just reading because one mm-hmm. eye sees far away and one eye sees up close and I'm always trying to match, but Hey, it beats the alternative, as the saying goes. But I know you guys are doing some real cool things with regard to what is the 120th Boston Marathon, 
April 18th. Mm-hmm. I know my wife is running the marathon. I'm not running nearly as far, but I'm doing something really cool with your running team called the Blindfold Challenge. What am I going to be doing yeah. on Saturday the 16th? Well, I don't know if you're you're running as the... I, I am the blindfolded person. You're the blindfolded yes. runner. Okay, yep. so the blindfold challenge is we have, you know, eight teams, eight pairs of runners. Mm-hmm. One runner is blindfolded, and the other runner is that runner's guide. So um, you obviously don't have to be visually impaired to participate. Right. It's, um, basically, usually our pairs are all sighted individuals, but one person is blindfolded throughout the whole distance. So it's a 5K distance. And I think for a lot of people who've never, you know, you've had an incredible experience of losing your sight for a period of time. A lot of people have never had that experience. They, you know, some people, you know, the lights are out at your house and Mm -hmm. you're panicked. It's like when you can't see even light, it's, it can be, you know, very disorienting and very, and very scary at times. Right. So now imagine throwing on a blindfold and going out and running five, you know, or running 3.1 miles, you know, it's, um, quite an experience and relying uh, on your t- totally on your guide and and hoping you know they don't take you the wrong way right <laughs> and so um, it's a pretty awesome event it really is it it's it's a it's a fundraising event each of our each of our pairs um, has a goal to raise a thousand dollars and all this money is going to help uh, go towards our great educational programs here at Perkins, and so we can just keep providing the great service that we provide our students, and uh, it's a great event. So. Yeah, it's a cool event. And then, of course, you also have a team that's going to run the marathon on, on Patriots Day on the 18th, uh, what you guys have right. done every year for yes, many, many every, years. Every year, yes, every year we have our marathon team. In fact, I'll get to meet them tomorrow night. So okay. I don't even know them yet, but I get, I'm looking forward to meeting our team tomorrow. So. Yeah, It'll be it's, great. it's um, well, you know, the marathon, it, it's an incredible experience. I'm assuming you might be out on the course or for part of it, you know, rooting some of the runners on, but the energy on Patriots Day, you know, nobody's working. You got yeah. people lined up from Hoptington where it starts all the way yeah. down to, you know, Boylestown near the Commons where it finishes cheering you on. And it just, you know, it's, you know, the Red Sox have a day game, which comes out yeah. early yeah. afternoon while that, you know, it's just, it's the most energetic, amazing thing I've ever experienced. I told my wife. You know, she's so lucky to be able to do it because it's like a once in a lifetime for me. It was twice in a lifetime experience. <laughs> and it just, yeah, it's just it such an awesome. event. It's just such a cool yeah. event. So yeah. uh, I know Perkins actually, uh, you had mentioned though, we're getting back to some numbers. You, you guys actually have a reach that goes beyond just local or, or even the U.S. Yes. Right? I know. You, you asked me how many people do we, do we actually, you know, have an impact. And mm-hmm. I, I, guess my, I guess to sum that up, I'd say on campus, it's in the hundreds. And regionally, it's in the thousands, and globally, it's in the millions. Yeah, it's in the millions. You know, I mean, yeah. that's really that's really the reach that we have because we have so many diverse programs, um, and because you know we have so many so many programs that that are focused offsite, um, such as our international program and our community programs and our outreach programs. So. Um, it's there's a lot going on here, you know. <laughs> it's a great place, and I I really value and appreciate how Perkins is constantly changing with the times. You know, it's it's you know education is um, not the same as it was 186 years ago. Um, in when we were founded, it's you know our our mission is still the same in that our goal is to help people who are visually impaired reach their full potential. And and if I was to sum up what we do, that is our goal. Um, how we accomplish that goal is ever-changing and evolving, 
and it's based on the needs of individuals on a global scale, and it's based on what's current and relevant to all of us. Yeah, do you have, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, do you have any yeah. estimates as to how many people worldwide are visually challenged? Oh, I It's a big, big number. I know it's huge. Feel so I would be embarrassed if I got okay. that wrong. I mean, That's okay. you know, it's in the United number. States, I, I would say in the United States, there's some statistics around 30 million. Right. Um, it depends on which numbers you look at and what the age range is, you know, so... So I do see 25 to 30 million uh, Americans with vision loss, experiencing vision loss. And what's really, uh, you know, dramatic is that we, we are expecting that, that number, especially among our older uh, adult population, to, to double. I mean, we're, we're looking yeah, at one in, that, one in three. Yeah, you, you might you know? think, well, given where medical technology rests, mm -hmm. you would expect that to decrease. We've got about one minute to go. But, but, yeah, I know. but because of longevity, people living longer, also because we've turned into, I think, a very nearsighted, I don't mean in terms of looking <laughs> at the future, but in terms right. of how we look at things and read, there are so many more people having just general eye issues right. because everything is so small that we look at that that number is projected to increase which just blows my mind yeah 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 i think something like one in three older adults over the age of 60 is going to have some vision loss that can't be corrected so that's what we're looking at that's what's going to that's our future and and uh we want to be here to support everyone so um it's it's a scary number but like i say you know it it's not a. It's not a matter of you can't do something. You just have to learn how to do it a little differently. Um, but Marla, really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Marla Runyon from Perkins School for the Blind. I'm going to see you folks back when I'm back in Boston here in about a week and a half. So really looking forward to Excellent. it. Hopefully we'll have some great weather. Great. And again, awesome. Marla, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take You're care. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye bye. Hey, it's Richard Musio. It's your money on your life. We are back. Again, I'm here without Joe. Joe gets the night off. And I've got another great guest out of Boston. The second half of the show, I'm going to pass on thanking the sponsors. Sorry, you guys. You get enough airplay as it is. And on our great website, iymoney.com, I now have a great guest. He's actually the CEO of Zoo New England, John Lenahan. John, are you on the line with us? I am, Richard. Pleasure to be here. Welcome. We really appreciate it. And um, quick background about yourself. Um, I know you've been with Zoo New England for many, many years. Just where you're from, how you got affiliated with the zoo, and, and what your position there is, please. Uh, sure. I've, I've actually been with the zoo for 35 years, and I started at the bottom and uh, went through many, many different positions, uh, caring for animals and managing people caring for animals. And uh, about 10, 12 years ago, ended up uh, in charge as the president. So at the bottom, does yeah. that mean that you have like a broom and something to sweep stuff into? Or I mean, <laughs> how low was the bottom yeah. where you started? What was your first job there? My first job was technically a laborer in the bird department. Oh, wow. And I had promoted to be a zookeeper. That was right, out of, right when I came out of school uh, for wildlife management up at the University of Maine. Oh, okay, so you're a native New Englander? Yes, I am. Neat stuff. Native Boston, Greater Boston. Okay, got gotcha. you, got gotcha. you. High school in Boston and so on. Yes. So I've uh, I've been in the area for a long time and visited the zoos that I now manage as a little boy. Yeah, that's really neat. Now I think most of my listeners don't know, but the zoo is well over a hundred years old, correct? Yes, we actually have two zoos, and both of them are over a hundred years old. 
So we have the Stone Zoo, which is in the northern suburbs, and mm-hmm. then we have the Franklin Park Zoo, which is uh, right in the heart of the city. Yeah, I recently visited the Franklin Park Zoo. I'd never been there before. Really, really nice facility because it's situated, well, first of all, in the heart of the city, but in a really beautiful park, too. It really is. It's, it's Franklin Park is over 500 acres of uh, really lush green space with uh, all kinds of activities that take place there from uh, the, the wilderness area for hiking to the zoo to a golf course and uh, playing fields where all kinds of sporting events take place. Yeah, it's a and lovely, we, we lovely park. The World Cross Country Championships in Franklin Park as well. Mm-hmm. That's correct. But uh, my, just briefly, we're going to talk about the Boston Marathon on the second half of your segment. I want to focus more on the zoo on the first half, but just by way of background, as you know, my wife Mary Musio is running her first Boston Marathon as part of the Zoo New England team, along with, I know you've got some other uh, good runners, Mark, who I've met, Dave, and it's just a really good cause, but more about running later. Um, I, I know just getting back to the zoo, um, I got a grand tour. We were in San Antonio a couple weeks ago when you guys were having a fundraiser on a Saturday back at the zoo. So my wife and I said, gee, we're halfway across the country already. Let's go. So we did. So we went from 110-degree um, weather in San Antonio to 40-degree weather in Boston, although we, um, it was sunny. We got out of town the day before the snowstorm hit that literally made, I think, about 120 flights out of Logan not happen. <laughs> so it was perfect timing. <laughs> But but you talk about a change in weather. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we just had another set of snowstorms uh, come through, so uh, it's been a funny spring. But uh, overall, the winter was very kind to us. Yeah, I'm curious. Has anybody looked? Because we're, you know, this uh, we're taping this a few days before it's airing on Saturday, the, um, the Saturday night. So we're, we're about a week and a half before. Has anybody looked at the long-range forecast for the marathon day yet or not? Because I haven't. I have not either, and uh, I can only imagine that it's going to be a lot nicer than it is right now. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's good. But, um, you know, the, I, I thought the zoo was incredible uh, when I when I took the tour because I said I'd never been to the Franklin Park before. But I know you you, you guys, the, the, the history is very interesting because I know the zoo being over 100 years old, there, there were times when it was very vi- vibrant, but also times when it was almost sort of ignored. Is that correct, reading the history? That's absolutely uh, accurate, and uh, we've... We've made a lot of progress since the days that it was ignored, but there were an awful lot of decades there where it was uh, past its original heyday and, and as you say, pretty much ignored. And so we had uh, a lot of work to do and, and uh, a lot of animals. It was pretty empty when they started there, in fact, 35 years ago. There, there were very few animals and, and almost even fewer visitors. Yeah, and I, I've always been of the opinion that any major metropolitan city, uh, because of the population of kids, also in particular Boston, because of the plethora of universities, I, I think a very yes. vibrant zoo is just an absolute necessity. Wouldn't you agree? I, I agree wholeheartedly, and uh, that's what we work every single day to uh, make it more and more vibrant every day, and uh, are making some good progress. We have a, we have a great team, not only the staff but the volunteers, the board members. The members, we have, you know, thousands of member families that are all uh, working together to make this uh, one of the finest zoos in the country. And um, I have a funny story to tell. You've got a great marketing director in Sandra Davidow. But the, so, yeah. so anyway, we went to we went to the um, little fundraiser, uh, not little, it was a significant event, lots and lots of, I mean, hundreds of people attending on that Saturday that we were back in Boston. And I had to go to the men's room. This is a very personal story. 
and there were flyers out, uh, you know, get, you know, to advertise for people to come to this great fundraising event at Franklin Park. And so I go into the men's room, and above the urinals, there's this this framed poster about come to this event with three pictures on it. Mark and David and the other member of the running team, which is my wife, Mary, in the men's room. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. And, of course, I had to sneak my wife into the men's room to see it. And she was laughing so hard. And so I said, I said to Sandra, I said, that's obviously your number one marketing idea, right? And she just almost slugged me. But anyway, for those listeners who didn't get the joke, number one refers to a certain thing. But I thought, I mean, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. So we got pictures and it's been on Facebook and... I mean, it was the funniest thing. I mean, it, it, just a great marketing idea. But I did not expect to see my wife's photo in the men's room. I just want to mention that. <laughs> no, no, we, we 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 try to get very creative, and we uh, we, we aren't shy about where we do it. <laughs> exactly. So, in fact, Sandra said she goes, you know, that's the only time I've been in the men's room too. I'm like, I don't need to know all this information, Sandra. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, wow, no. that was so funny. Wonderful that you were able to make it. Yeah, it was a really neat event, and it was it was in the um, tropical forest, which was nice because it was 40 degrees outside, but about 73 in the tropical forest. That's and right. Just there's a, there's just a creature in there. But just some amazing animals in there. The anteater, Giacomo. Um, boy, what a personality. <laughs> Did you get a chance to feed him? Well, we watched the feeding uh, where they put this tube up that I think it must be, what, 18 inches long or so? And yeah. just, just to see that. That's right. Yeah. But, so Giacomo, he's not the type of animal. You know, I don't know if you watched him uh, walking around the exhibit. He walked on his knuckles, similar to a uh, yeah, gorilla. I saw that. So he's he wouldn't be too good for something like a marathon, I don't think. But no, we've but got I, some other creatures that'd be great. Yeah, but the tropical forest, great exhibit. In fact, the gorillas in in that exhibit are, were incredible too. The one who likes to sit by the glass and sort of ponder life as people walk by. Really yeah. funny to watch. Yeah, our grandma. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. But, uh, you, we, we, but I, we have a wonderful bunch of ambassadors there. Yeah, but I know Mark, who's running, uh, actually works, I think, in that exhibit. And I think, in fact, his picture up on your website is with the large gorilla right there in the background off of his shoulder. Yes. So uh, Matt's been Matt's been at the zoo for a few years now. I, I think this is his first marathon. It but, is, uh, correct, correct. He's ready to go. He's, he just had a 22-mile run. And uh, he's been working hard. Uh, one evening, one of the local restaurants allowed him to uh, roll burritos and keep everything he made. And he rolled like 86 burritos oh, wow. in two hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's pretty. That's a pretty good skill to have, especially yeah. in Boston. Uh, hey, we're going to take a quick break. We're with John Lenahan, who's CEO of Zoo New England. We're going to be right back. So everybody's please stay tuned. Right back at you. Thanks. It's your money and your life. It's your money and your life. It's a Joe Vecchio-less. It's your money on your life. Richard Musio flying solo, but actually not technically. I've got Justin in studio, and I've got John Lenahan, the CEO of Zoo New England, on the line talking about Zoo New England, an absolutely amazing two-location zoo in Boston, as well as um, the marathon. I want to talk about that too, but real briefly, Zoo New England. You guys, I don't know. If this is really well known, even inside of Boston. You do a ton of research there, don't you? We do. We do a ton of research and a ton of conservation 
programs and projects and collaborations. And, um, you know, it, it's everything from uh, we're currently one of the really fascinating projects we're currently working on is characterizing uh, the reproductive cycle in pygmy hippos using multiple biomarkers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, then uh, uh, with the ultimate aim of, of being able to do artificial insemination, which is really a, a really important uh, component of a conservation program that involves large animals like that that are difficult to ship around for natural reproduction. Right, of course. And especially because uh, there is a shortage of male pygmy hippos in the in the captive population, but it also represents a way in which we could exchange genetic material between the captive population and the wild population without moving any animals either way. So it, it really holds, uh, and more and more, as, as you know, the, the wild world is becoming cut up by uh, human development, and uh, populations are becoming isolated. And without the introduction of, of unrelated genetic material, uh, all these creatures, both in captivity and in the wild, many of them will become uh, inbred and weakened, and, and eventually uh, they will die out. So uh, this exchange of genetic material is crucial to the future of keeping uh, species wild and viable. Yeah, I mean, obviously, extinction not a good not not a good answer for any species. Obviously, as you mentioned, inbreeding promotes um, lack of health, lack of longevity, and all other factors that ultimately probably lead to extinction as well. Um, yeah, certainly, you know, yeah, development in the world has changed or has affected animals greatly. Also, there's climate change that's affecting. I know out here on the west coast in San Diego, um, the increase in temperature in the Pacific Ocean has had a huge impact on, for example, the sea lion population as well as the the um, population of food, the smaller fish that used to be present that no longer are because the water's so warm. That's exactly right. You know, these these uh, some of these changes are almost inevitable at this point. We can continue to do what we can and, and educate people on how to reduce their their carbon footprints and and try to slow this. But at at present, we've also got to find ways to adapt to it. And and so we're doing some work in these areas. Uh, you know, I can just speaking for myself. The the uh, the frogs that start calling were were three weeks ahead of where they've been for the mm-hmm. last six years, as I've been recalling, uh, recording them. And so uh, things are getting thrown off, and and creatures' ability to adapt to this changing environment is absolutely going to be crucial to their future. And and so there's a lot of work yet to be done. Uh, we are collaborating with universities. We're collaborating with other co- conservation organizations. And, and also bringing awareness to the people who visit the zoo. So one of the things we've done is we've implemented what's called the Quarters for Conservation Program so that a quarter out of every admission that comes through mm-hmm. the gate goes to our field conservation programs. And people go and vote for different projects we're considering supporting. And uh, they have to read, and, and they read it as a family and, and talk it over, and then they vote with their tokens, and and uh, we allocate some funding to these different projects. In some cases, our staff is directly involved in them, whether it be saving frogs in Panama or saving turtles right here in our own state that are, that are under threat. But uh, then there are other ones uh, saving snow leopards in Central Asia or uh, you know I was, just re- I was just reading about snow leopards in Smithsonian magazine I mean they're hard to even spot because they live in such high altitudes that most people can't climb that high that's absolutely right so you know we're in that case we're collaborating with uh, the snow leopard trust and they've got folks that are working there in the field some of the snow leopards are collared and 
and so you can see some of the effects of some of climate change on them and and in some cases their habitat is shrinking mm -hmm. so it's a um, you know if we're going to save all these species or as many as possible we really have to be uh, working together and and uh, sharing resources and and sharing uh, research and and uh, that's what we're really trying to do right now yeah and i noticed with the day i was at the zoo tons of kids out so i mean to the extent that we get the message about the environment and animals and so on to kids, the younger, the better. Absolutely. And we're also training teachers. So uh, as a way to really touch more and more kids more and more deeply. So uh, teachers and parents are learning right along with the kids and, and these things. In some cases, we don't have time to wait for these young people to grow up. We need to make some moves now. So it's important to train adults as well as the kids. Yeah, I agree. So John, my wife, Mary, M-A-R-I, she spells it with an I, yeah. is running the Boston Marathon, really appreciates being on the team. Very excited Thank about you. her her first yeah. Boston. But a question, you've been in the city for basically your whole life. Have you ever run Boston? Are you a runner or is this not something you do? But I had it in my sights at one time okay. and then blew up me in, in football and have no cartilage left in oh, one okay. knee and my distance running days came to an end. Gotcha. You're going to be out on the course, though, cheering some people on? I love being out there and, and have been out there almost every year. And uh, so I, I've uh, I've seen our other runners finish, and uh, it is a great day. It's a really a celebratory day. And, and uh, you know, despite the, the shadow that has been put over it, it remains a day of great pride for the city. Yeah, I ran it in 2010 and again 2012. Um, one cold day, one very hot day. <laughs> so I got to see both extremes. And uh, just yeah. an amazing high-energy event. You know, it's Patriots Day, so hardly anybody's working. Um, people right. along the course, basically, for all 26.2 miles, cheering you on, giving you oranges and ice and all kinds of things to help you keep your feet moving forward. And um, just such a high-energy event. Of course, the Red Sox. Look like they're pretty good this year. They're playing an afternoon game, so they come out while the marathon is, is you know, the fans are coming out while the marathon's going on. Just really neat stuff. It's, it's a fantastic day and a fantastic experience and a great way to experience Boston. And uh, we also do some community service with our staff uh, in celebration of one Boston day that's been, been tied to the whole event. Mm -hmm. So we're... It's it's a it's just a fun a fun experience. I know it's not as fun for the runners until they finish, but right. uh, to watch that to watch them all come in, I, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of going out there and what being near the finish line. Yeah, it's, it's just so high energy, but such an accomplishment for somebody to finish. So, John, um, I know you've been with the zoo for about 35 years, and yeah. and um, some amazing changes and accomplishments in your time. How, how do you see the zoo say in terms of the 10 year vision? What do you think things are going to look like 10 years from now? I think they're going to look very different than they do now. You know, we've we've been making tremendous headway in adding species, adding exhibits, but I think that the quality of the exhibits is really increasing. And this fall, we're going to open up a new children's zoo. It's called Nature's Neighborhoods, and it's about teaching young people about the interrelatedness of biodiversity. You know, if you compare it with your neighborhood, mm -hmm. where all different people live and do different jobs, then the kids can really start getting latching their arms around what an ecosystem is and how an ecosystem, how biodiversity is critical to the health of an ecosystem and that people are part of these ecosystems and, and they rely on these other animals as well as those animals now relying on people to take care of them. So it's it's about, it's really a message about understanding uh, diversity and, and bringing it all together. And I think that uh, 
it's it's geared for the youngest kids, and we haven't done anything really directed at young kids the way that we are with this project. So I think it's a great kickoff to our, our whole master plan that will change the face of the zoo dramatically. Yeah, and boy, if people want to see something really cool at your zoo, actually it's in the tropical um, tropical forest. My wife and I were just checking out some of the exhibits, and we heard some flapping overhead, and we're like, oh, my goodness, those are fruit bats. Because, you know, we have some out here. You know, so we knew what they were, but we didn't expect to have any bats flying overhead. It was just so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a great evening experience in that tropical forest they don't fly till the evening but uh, right yeah we were there yeah. they came out at about it was about 5 p.m right when they came out it was just starting it was just before the time change it was starting to get dark and um, there they were and it was really neat <laughs> yeah some of them have a two-foot wingspan and uh they're all african fruit bats in that building yeah so that uh, it's it's a great experience for people to see something they never see normally in new england which is a, a fruit bat with a two-foot wingspan but, exactly uh, John, really appreciate it. Hey, we're out of time. I apologize. Everybody, Zoo, New England, check out my wife's webpage, Mary Musio, CrowdRise to raise some funds. It's great stuff. John, I look forward to meeting you when we're back there in about a week. Really appreciate your time thank on the show. You. Thanks we, so much. I look forward to seeing you. All right, thank Alrighty. you. Also, big thank you to Justin Hart on the board, Dave Sniff, our program director, Craig Blanke, everybody here at KFMB. More about our Boston Marathon experience when I get back. Richard Musio, it's your money in your life. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks again.